Okay, take your Bibles out and let's go back to Daniel 7. Difficult chapter to outline. And so we'll do sort of a running commentary tonight through it. The vision of the ancient of days. The vision of the ancient of days. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke into pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, as we entered into Daniel 7 last week, I mentioned how we turned a very important corner in the book. Because now as we get into chapter 7 and following, we are primarily in the prophetic section of the book. And... uh, we saw how chapter 2 and chapter uh, 7 correspond to one another. But for the most part, the first six chapters are historical narrative. The last six chapters are prophecy. Now, one interpreter of Daniel makes a point that we need to understand. We need to imagine almost like we're watching a movie on a big screen... And what Daniel is seeing at this point is a lot of symbols, and we need to picture some of these images in our mind. By giving symbols, he intends to draw a picture in our minds that we can clearly see. And what we need to see is these four hideous beasts coming up out of the sea of humanity. And we need to picture them, one right after another, defeating the beast that preceded them, and then coming into a time of uh, prominence themselves before they're defeated. Now, it's fairly easy to, to visualize those images. It's a very effective way to communicate in apocalyptic literature. And so as Daniel is dreaming, he sees these four beasts. Now, let's spend a moment reviewing from last week. Again, I mentioned last week how Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 can lay down on top of one another. 
They speak of the same kingdoms. Daniel 2 is more from man's perspective of looking at these kingdoms, and Daniel 7 is more from God's perspective. Now, the thing you're going to notice is the sheer accuracy of this prophecy with recorded history. In fact, the details of this vision in chapter 7 are so accurate that some critics, some Bible critics who deny prophecy would try to tell us there is no way Daniel could have written this in such preciseness way back in the 6th century B.C. And so they will say, rather than a 6th century B.C. figure writing of future events, Daniel is a 2nd century B.C. figure, and he's just writing of history that has already occurred. Well, now again, the main reason they say this is because of the preciseness of prophecy. They deny that it's even possible. They do this with other prophets as well. Uh, For example, with Isaiah. Because Isaiah not only prophesied about the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, but he also wrote about the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom. In fact, Isaiah even went so far as to say, at the end of the Babylonian kingdom, a Persian conqueror by the name of Cyrus would be, would be the one who would come to power, who would issue the decree for the Jews to leave Babylon and be able to go back home and rebuild. And sure enough, it was Cyrus who came to power and issued that decree. Critics will say, there is no way that Isaiah could have known that and even given us the name of the king who was going to issue the decree. Well, my response to that is while the, while the prophet himself couldn't have known, the prophet knew the God who does know. If you reject Daniel as a legitimate 6th century prophet, you have to say all of the historical references in the book of Daniel are a lie. That Daniel is writing as a deceiver. He's claiming to write about things future, but he's doing this in deception. He's actually a historian. The events have already passed, but he's wanting us to believe that he's a prophet writing of future things. And so you have to say of the entire book of Daniel that Daniel is writing as a deceiver. Now, Furthermore, you've got problems with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ affirmed the things that Daniel prophesied about and in Matthew 24 even called Daniel a prophet, not a historian. And then furthermore, you've got another problem. If you want to say that Daniel is a 2nd century historian, 2nd century B.C. historian and not a 6th century B.C. prophet, You're still coming up short-sighted. Because you see, the prophecies in the book of Daniel don't end with the 2nd century B.C. There are lots of events in the book that are still future beyond the 2nd century B.C. In fact, events that are recorded that go all the way to the end of time. And so even if he were a deceiver, who, uh, a historian writing from the 2nd century B.C. perspective, he's still writing about future events. So on a number of fronts, you've got problems. Folks, I hope you don't have trouble with prophecy. I hope you don't have trouble believing that God can predict things that are going to happen in the future. I hope that your picture of God is that of a God who is big enough to tell us the future and big enough to be sovereign over the future. Uh, and so it shouldn't be far-fetched in our minds at all to see that God can, can give prophecies of things. Well, let's get back into chapter 7 a minute. Remember the animals last week, what we said they stood for. The lion with the eagle's wings was Babylon. The lion was known as the king of the beast. 
Uh, remember how when we were back in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the head of gold. He's the gold in the statue. Uh, all the other kingdoms were described in both a descending and an ascending order at the same time. Descending that each metal, that there was the gold, the silver, the bronze, each metal after the head of gold was descending in value. But while descending in value, what else did we say about those metals? Those metals? They're ascending in strength. Well, I mentioned too how winged lions were a common symbol of Babylon. Statues of winged lions uh, archaeologists have found plenty of these in and around Babylon. And also Jeremiah and Jeremiah 49, 19 through 22 referred to Babylon as both a lion and an eagle. So again, that fits, that description fits what we know about the Babylonian Empire. And then there was the bear standing for the Medo-Persian Empire. And that was so fitting. A bear is large but not as swift. Goes by brute force and strength and that's... Perfect description of what the Medo-Persian Empire did. And they have an incredible appetite. And that's how the Medo-Persians were, conquering kingdom after kingdom uh, from the Indus River in the east uh, to Egypt and the Aegean Sea in the west. And it was raised up on one side, the bear was. The Persians came to dominance in this partnership. And then the three ribs that it had in its mouth, scholars and historians feel this refers to the way the Medo-Persian Empire conquered three kingdoms. Babylon in 339, uh, I mean 539 B.C., Lydia in 546 B.C., and Egypt in 525 B.C. And then there was the leopard, Greece. The four-winged leopard represents Greece with its swiftness to conquer under Alexander the Great, who was born in 356 B.C., and he ruled from Europe to Africa to India. Uh, I've read that he conquered faster than any other, uh, conquered territory faster than any other kingdom uh, in history. Now, in 323 B.C., he died at the age of 32 after 12 years of ruling, and his kingdom was divided among four of his generals, hence the four-headed leopard. Uh, those four generals were Ptolemy, who ruled Egypt and Palestine, Seleucus, who took Syria, Babylon, and much of the Middle East, Cassander, who took Greece and Macedonia, and Lysimachus, who ruled Asia Minor. And then there was the fourth beast. Again, scholars, as I mentioned last week, believe this, this is a picture of Rome. And uh, such a horrible beast it was that Daniel doesn't even give uh, an animal that we would know to describe it. He simply says it was a terrible beast with iron teeth. And already in Daniel 2, we saw that iron was also used to describe the Roman Empire. Now, Roman dominion fell apart in A.D. 476, and yet it lived on in a divided status. Uh, the eastern and western aspects of the empire and the divided status of the old Roman Empire is Europe. And so somebody has said it's almost like the fourth kingdom went into hibernation and one day it's going to wake up. Now at the end of verse 7, we're shot into the future because nothing until this time corresponds to what we see here. We see here in, in, in verse 7, it, it, it says there that after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, uh, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, that had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So these ten horns, signs of power, of government, so... It's a kingdom whose power is split into ten sections, ten rulers. Verse 8 says there was another horn, in other words, an eleventh, a little horn. Insignificant at first, and then this little horn becomes somewhat dominant because he uproots three of the others. 
Now, folks, the little horn here is a picture of the Antichrist. Now, some ask if this could not be a picture of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a very wicked Syrian ruler who opposed the Jews in the days between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The answer to that, could this be Antiochus Epiphanes? The answer is no. Now let me explain why. Antiochus Epiphanes was a part of the third kingdom. Not the fourth. The third kingdom. He came to power after Alexander had died, after Alexander's kingdom had been divided among his generals. One of his generals was a man by the name of Seleucus who took the area of Syria. And it was from this area that Antiochus rose to power. He was a Syrian. But the little horn here in chapter 7 is not a part of the third kingdom, but he's a part of the fourth kingdom that has been revived. Now we're going to see this in greater detail in chapter 8. Now, to confuse you a little bit more at this point, okay, there's going to be a little horn in chapter 8 that probably does stand for Antiochus. In chapter 8, we will see a ram symbolizing the Medo-Persian Empire, just like the bear symbolizes it here in chapter 7. In chapter 8, a ram will symbolize it. And then we'll see a goat moving against the ram and defeating the ram at the zenith of the goat's power. Its horn was broken and four horns come up in its place. Now, once again, this can be compared to the leopard in chapter 7 with four heads. Alexander died and his kingdom went to his four generals. And then in chapter 8, verse 9, we see a little horn that comes up among the four. That's Antiochus. Now, later we're going to talk about that in chapter 8 from verses 9 to 14. And all those details that describe Antiochus Epiphanes. Who went into the temple, sacrificed the pig, the abomination that causes desolation. That Jesus said the Antichrist at the end of times is also going to do. Okay? And so what I'm getting at, what I want you to understand, I don't want to confuse you. We have two separate pictures of a little horn. In chapter 7, we have, we have the little horn that grows out of the fourth kingdom. In chapter 8, the little horn that grows out of the third kingdom. Okay? Now, while Daniel's dream and vision has so far been concerned with the earth, in verse 9, the focus shifts. In verse 9 he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And so now our movie screen splits, if you will. We have the lower part of the screen with all the fighting and the conquering and the boasting going on. And now we have the top half of the screen. And in the top half of the screen, Daniel is seeing what's going on from the heavenly perspective. Now, he says, I beheld till thrones were cast down. It can be translated, I beheld till thrones were set up or put in place. If the interpretation is thrones cast down, it means that Daniel saw in his vision of the earthly empires till they all ran out of time and God judged them. Or if we go with thrones put in place, which is more likely, it could mean that the heavenly judgment hall is being set up. And as Daniel sees this throne being set up and the one seated on it, he sees the Ancient of Days. Description, of course, of God. Garment white as snow, hair like, like a head of pure wool, throne was a fiery flame, 
And so we have the timelessness of God, the purity of God, the wisdom, the agelessness of God, and then the fire being a picture of judgment. And then he says it's wheels of burning fire. Some commentators take this to stand for mobility. God can go anywhere. He's not, he's not confined as he goes about judging the earth. In verse 10, we see a picture of majesty here. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now folks, the throne room scene that we see here corresponds very much to Revelation 4 and 5. What John saw in Revelation 4 and 5. Of God's throne. And then what John described in Revelation 20. Of the books being opened and judgment. We see all the heavenly beings being seated. The books being opened. God has a library. You knew that, right? Moses knew that in Exodus 32. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. You know, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book. Malachi 3.16 speaks of a book of remembrance for those who fear God. Revelation 20.12, John says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Books. Records. Communicating to us, folks, that God's judgment is not arbitrary. God's judgment is not arbitrary. Records are kept. Not because God needs them, but so that those about to be condemned might face the record of their own actions and words. Now, folks, the Bible speaks of judgment quite often. In John 5, I've given you a record of these. John 5, 24, Romans 5, 9, Romans 8, 1, Galatians 3, 13 speaks of the judgment of the believer's sin when Jesus died on the cross. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the individual's judgment of self. 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of the judgment of the believer's works. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the sheep and goats passage speaks of the judgment of nations. Jude 1, 6 speaks of the judgment of the angels. And Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the great white throne speaks of the judgment of all unbelievers. Now, let's say, let me say something here. There, there's some disagreement among scholars about the judgments. Some scholars list, list out more judgments than others. Some roll the judgments together and come out with fewer. But one thing is clear. Everybody's going to be judged. Nobody's going to escape. This is crystal clear. Each one of us has a day in God's court. We have an appointment before the Ancient of Days. Now the good news for the believer is, Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But again, 1 Corinthians 3 makes clear, that believers' works will be judged. The issue will not be salvation or not. That's determined at the cross. But our works will be judged. And rewards will be based on that. Everybody's going to face judgment. Now, in verse 11, we're back on earth at the bottom of the movie screen, you might say. He says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So here we are back down on earth again in the height of the power and the arrogance of the Antichrist, he struck down. 
Revelation 19, 19 to 21 says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now look at verse 12. Well, verse 11 and 12, he says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, this verse is commonly interpreted almost as a footnote to the overall picture being given here. Now the explanation goes something like this. That while at the, end of the time, at the end of time the Lord is going to swiftly and decisively destroy the Antichrist. This is not how the other kingdoms come to an end. While God allowed another kingdom to conquer them, they weren't destroyed totally, but they were rather amalgamated into the kingdom that took them over. Now that could explain why when we come to Revelation 13:2, we see that there's a vestige or a remnant of all the previous kingdoms in the last earthly kingdom. Because again, as each beast symbolizes in a new kingdom, as it defeats the one that was before it, the one that was before it is amalgamated into it. But again, not so with the Antichrist. He's decisively destroyed all at once. Now in verses 13 and 14, we're back in heaven again, the top half of the movie screen. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so in a very sudden and decisive way, the fifth kingdom, remember the fifth kingdom was that stone in Daniel 2. It smashes all the other kingdoms before it and it's established and it never ends the kingdom of the Messiah, the fifth kingdom. Now this too corresponds with Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, he was clothed with the robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has, a, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image." 
These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, from verse 14, you'll notice that the kingdom of Christ is two things described here. It's universal and it's everlasting. It's universal. It's not just made up of one people, but all people who believe in Him. And it's secondly everlasting because all the kingdoms of the earth are pass, or have passed away. We've seen kingdoms come and go, one right after another. One ruler is subject to defeat by another. Showing us that all this world has to offer is only temporary and it's not lasting. But by contrast, the kingdom of the Lord will be everlasting. Now, pick up reading with me in verses 15 to 18. In the second half of the chapter, largely what's going to happen to a great degree in the second half is Daniel is going to be given a further explanation, just a clearer explanation of what all took place in the first half of the chapter. But let's pick up reading in verse 15. He says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. We're told that Daniel's vision alarmed him. Now why would he be so disturbed? I mean, the way the vision ends, one would think that he'd be quite happy to learn that the kingdom of God shall be finally in control. So why is Daniel alarmed? Why is he disturbed? Well, a couple of things have been suggested. As we all know from reading the scripture, the Jews' hope for the messianic rule of the Messiah was the intense longing in their hearts. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, what were they thinking was going to happen? He was going to overthrow Rome and set up his earthly kingdom right then and there, right? When he didn't, their shouts of Hosanna turned to shouts of crucifying. You see, they failed to see that there would be two comings of the Messiah. The first is the suffering servant to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And then the second at the end of the age as the conquering hero. Because of this confusion, they rejected Christ. Now, I say that simply to point out that they were longing for their Messiah and His kingdom upon this earth that would one day day be established. And so as Daniel listened to this vision of the four beasts, he must have realized that the longed-for messianic kingdom was going to be delayed. It's going to be a long time yet coming. It becomes clear to Daniel... That after the Babylonian Empire, the Messianic Kingdom's not going to be established. There's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Greece, and then Rome. And so he realizes this is something he's not going to see in his lifetime. That's one explanation that's given of why he was troubled. Another explanation is because he realizes from the vision of the four beasts how violent the kingdoms of men are going to be. And so he understands the future of his people is going to be a future involving great suffering. And he's troubled about that. Well, verse 16, Daniel walks over to the one who stood nearby. Obviously, this is one of the heavenly beings that we saw back in verse 10. He hangs around so he could interpret Daniel's vision and be kind of like a Bible teacher to Daniel. 
Now, look at, what he, look at what is said here in verse 16. He says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Folks, what's, what's a Bible truth here? A Bible truth here is that God wants to communicate with his people. He wants us to understand what the scripture is about. Even something as far out in our minds as reading a chapter about all these wild creatures and beasts. God wanted Daniel to understand what this was all about. He wants us to understand what this is all about. Yeah, it's like watching some kind of sci-fi movie or something, but God wants us to understand what all these symbols mean. And so he communicates. God wants us to understand end-time events even. Now, we're not to go get so wrapped up in that that that's all we ever think about. But a study of eschatology ought to both warn us and comfort us. It ought to warn us that if we're not ready to meet the Lord, we better get ready because these things could start unfolding imminently. But it's great comfort because as we read them, we see that God is in charge. And history isn't just happening kind of out of control and arbitrary. There is a plan in history. God has a plan and His plan is being followed. And so in verse 16, the angel's guided tour ensues. Now notice how quickly things move. He speeds through four kingdoms very quickly. Uh, In verse 17, he says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Here again, he's just repeating these four kingdoms of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and how that fifth kingdom is going to smash all the other kingdoms. The fifth kingdom, again, being the kingdom of the Lord, is going to smash all the earthly kingdoms at the end of time and be established forever and ever and ever. And the saints who believe in Christ are going to inherit the kingdom. So that's that's the speed through lesson that he's given here. Now, in verse 19, Daniel kind of slows the guided tour down a little bit. He's really curious about that fourth kingdom. He says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left uh, with its feet. the, The angel goes... He, he, he tells the angel what it is he saw in verse 23 the angel begins to interpret let's just read all this begin in verse 20 he was curious also about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions as I looked this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them And to the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And so again, beginning in verse 23, what we have here 
is the angel is giving Daniel an explanation of all this. Now, as I've mentioned, I go along with those Bible interpreters that put this yet future. The fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, was never replaced by another kingdom. It became what we know today as Europe, the western division of it. Some Bible scholars see it being like an ember burning that's been smoldering now for, for centuries and one day there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. And, and there's going to be some type of confederations among the nations, a common market, common current. We've already seen some of that coming about over there. Now these same interpreters look at verse 24 along with verse 8 and they, they say that there will be one leader, an eleventh, who is the Antichrist. So some type of revived Roman Empire that, that comes back into power predominantly at the end and one leader that arises out of them who takes control of things. Now, we know, again, this is the Antichrist. We don't know all the details of how it's going to shake down. Some details are left out. But he's described here. Now, let me advise you to stay away from what we've seen in the past. It's pretty common in the history of Christianity that some wicked ruler comes along, a Hitler or a Mussolini or somebody comes along, and all of a sudden everybody in the church says, oh, he's got to be the Antichrist. Don't get caught up in that, okay? And if you're around to find out who he is, it means you've been left behind. Okay? But we're told some things about him in the scripture. In chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In chapter 8, he is referred to as a king with a fierce countenance. In 2 Thessalonians, he's referred to as the man of sin, the son of perdition, and the lawless one. In Revelation 13, he's described as the first beast. Daniel 7, 20 and 24, the end of the verse, suggests that he is going to be powerful. Now, when the church is taken out of the picture and all hell breaks loose on this earth, the world is going to be eager to accept somebody who can promise to put all the pieces back together. The Antichrist is going to come along claiming to do just that. Daniel 7, 20 and 25 suggests that he's going to be proud. He's going to be a smooth talker. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12, he says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in, unright in unrighteousness. He'll be proud, he'll be powerful, and people will follow him. You say, why will people follow him? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2 says he's going to be backed by the power of Satan. And then on top of that, the scripture says there that God is part of the judgment on unbelievers is going to send a deluding influence so that people will believe a lie. Those left behind, the unbelievers, the unregenerate, who would not repent of their sins and turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to believe the lies of the Antichrist and they're going to get sucked up in his deception. Now Daniel 7.25 indicates not only that he's going to be powerful but that he's going to persecute. He's going to come against the saints of the Most High. And they're going to suffer greatly. Jesus described that in Matthew 24. That had those days not been cut short, 
that even the elect wouldn't have been able to bear it all. It's going to be bad. It's going to be real bad. The persecutions that the Antichrist levels against the saints. Daniel 7.25 also indicates that he's going to be purposeful. He's going to intend to change the times and the law. He's just going to kind of rewrite things according to how he wants them. And the saints are going to be persecuted for three and a half years, but Daniel 7, 26 and 27 gives the good news. It says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So that's the good news. The good news. At the end of all this, God is going to defeat the Antichrist, establish His kingdom, and the saints are going to rule and reign with Him. And if you want to see how great that's going to be, all you have to do is read a little bit from Isaiah 65. There in verse 18 of Isaiah 65, he says, But but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Uh, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. A beautiful picture of the millennial kingdom of the Lord. Well, folks, let me go over some lessons for today. We need to understand that difficult times for now are only going to increase. There's going to be more spiritual counterfeits. There's going to be more bloodshed among nations. There's going to be more hostilities against Christians. Okay? It's going to get worse, not going to get better. Secondly, we must not trust in the kingdoms of this world. We don't dare put our faith and trust in the kingdoms of this world, no matter how secure or powerful they seem to be. We need to already be warned of the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world. John talks about that. Already there are many Antichrists. There's coming an Antichrist, but already there are many Antichrists gone out into the world. We ought to be reminded that God is in control. Again, history is not arbitrary. That's what Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 shows us. History is not whipping in the wind and flailing and out of control and, and God, didn't, God doesn't even know what's going to happen next. No, that's not the picture the Bible tells us at all. God is directing it all along according to His purposes. Fifthly, we should realize that even the worst form of evil, such as that promoted by the Antichrist, is going to be judged. 
And, and so we may grow discouraged when we see the world seen today, but folks, we need to be encouraged by the fact that evil is not going to be allowed to run rampant forever because in a swift moment of judgment and destruction, God's going to do away with all those who oppose Him. Every world system that opposes God, every person who opposes God is going to be defeated. Sixth, and most importantly, we must prepare for our appointment with God. You have an appointment with the Ancient of Days. What do you do when you have an appointment? Let's say you have a doctor's appointment in the morning. You get up, you bathe, at least I hope you do. You brush your teeth, at least I hope you do. You drive there and you wait. You prepare. Well, you've got an appointment with the Ancient of Days, and so do I. Are you saved? Have you repented of your sins and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him and Him alone, what He did at the cross to save you from your sins? Are you growing in your relationship with the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Are you about God's business? Because life is all about Him. Everything we do on this earth. Is temporary. Life is but a vapor. And everything we invest in in this world, if it's something just worldly, it's going to come crashing down one day. And all that's going to live on through eternity is what we do for the Lord. So how are you living your life? What are you investing your life in? Be setting your house in order, getting ready for this appointment you have with the Ancient of Days. Now, I know that's a lot of information in chapter 7. But I wanted to run through it all tonight in one swoop. Did I blow your mind, kind of? Ray, come up here a minute and tell us what all I said tonight. Can you do that? A five-minute synopsis of everything I said. It's fearful and exciting. Fearful because we know troubled days are coming to the earth. But exciting... Because we know what God has in store for His people. 